About one out of every four clinicians in the U.S. are considering leaving healthcare due to unrelenting burnout, according to a Bain & Company survey. Of those considering leaving the field entirely, 89% cite burnout as the primary cause. Additionally, around 40% of all clinicians surveyed say they need more resources to operate at full potential. This level of burnout is having a significant impact on the healthcare industry. Hospital-based staff have the highest rate of turnover, which increased 6.4 percentage points in the past year alone. And according to NSI's National Healthcare Retention and RN Staffing Report, the staff RN turnover rate has reached 27%. More than half of the doctors, 51%, have considered leaving for a different job in healthcare due to the rising toll of stress during the COVID-19 pandemic and resulting in staffing shortages, according to an MGMA study. These trends indicate that the healthcare industry needs help to retain its workforce. This is having a negative impact on the quality of care that patients receive. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with Dr. Susan Landers about burnout. Dr. Landers practiced academic neonatology for 14 years and served on the faculty of two medical schools, Baylor College of Medicine in Houston and the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences in Little Rock. She also raised three children with her husband during that time. And since retiring from medicine, Dr. Landers has wrote a book called So Many Babies and shared her experience with burnout. She serves to educate others about this condition and the risk factors for and causes of burnout and the effective methods to treat and prevent burnout. Dr. Landers' experience provides a unique perspective on burnout that can help other driven individuals avoid this condition. Her insights help us understand the causes of burnout and how to address them before they become a problem. The episode does focus a bit on burnout in the medical field, but it can happen in any industry and does. Burnout is a state of emotional, mental, and physical exhaustion caused by excessive and prolonged stress. Unlike normal exhaustion, burnout is not simply a result of overwork or lack of sleep. It's a syndrome that can have serious consequences for an individual's health and productivity. Overall, it's a really great conversation, and Dr. Landers has so much to teach us on the subject. But find out for yourself, and I hope you enjoy the Dr. Susan Landers with Jay Burke Show. Welcome to the With Jay Burke Show. My name is Jason Burke, and though I'm technically the host of this podcast, it's the guests who truly take top billing. This is a place for curious minds who enjoy civil and sometimes meandering conversation. If you appreciate a few laughs and want to come away with new knowledge about subjects that aren't always easy to break down, then you're the person I want listening to this podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Susan Landers. Dr. Landers was a neonatologist for 35 years and a mother of three who has spent her career caring for critically ill newborns. In her new book, So Many Babies, she describes her experiences as a physician and mother and how she found resilience and endurance throughout her career. Susan managed to postpone burnout until the end of her career. While caring for sick newborns and critically ill premature babies, she encountered some ethically challenging cases that troubled her. Her physical and emotional exhaustion ballooned at the end of her career, and she developed burnout. 
She now enjoys talking about her recovery from burnout. Dr. Landers, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you, Jay. I appreciate the invitation. Sure. And I do enjoy talking about physician and nurse burnout because it's so common right now. I know among your listeners, there are people married to a doctor or a nurse or a respiratory therapist. There are people who practice their job during the pandemic, and they are probably worn out. The pandemic brought out the worst in so many healthcare providers. You know, the lack of PPE at the beginning, the lack of beds in the end, uh, the death and dying. It, it was just so hard on every kind of healthcare provider. I think you mentioned to me before that your wife is a nurse. Yes. I know the nurses have really taken it on the chin. I read just last week that about 30% of nurses have been verbally abused and some have had physical threats. I just can't even imagine how they manage through that kind of pressure, that kind of threat. Yeah. at work. It's really sad. Yeah. Well, so she's a new nurse, actually. So she was thinking about doing it. And then when the pandemic came, she was home for a while, obviously, and then uh, just decided that she was going to take the entrance exam and see where she fell, what she needed to study. And she ended up getting in. And good, good, good. I said, you know what, it's no time like the present, we'll figure it out. So it was it was a long two years. Um, and now she's got to go for her BSN, I think it is, right? Good. Yeah, good. Um, but yeah, she just she actually just started working like a, a few months ago, and, and she's dealt with some of that. She takes it pretty well right now, anyway. Good. Probably mostly because they're she's working with a lot of people who might have um, mental disabilities or, or things mm. like that. You now, so mm. um, so she knows it's you know not coming from a place of good of hate or whatever. It's usually coming from a place of fear and misunderstanding or something. So, but, you know, I was reading some articles and they were talking about how physicians are experiencing what's called delayed COVID-19 burnout. Mm, I'm not surprised. Yes. (laughs) Well, you know, physicians are taught, I do want to get back to your nurse, your wife being a young nurse and Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about how she can protect herself from burnout. But delayed burnout in physicians occurs because we are taught to tolerate everything bad when we're residents. We are taught from the get-go, don't complain, don't whine, you will be perceived as weak. And it's a culture of strength, and it's a culture of tolerance. You know, in the old days, the attendings would pimp the residents, and they would ask them questions to embarrass and shame them. Nowadays, you can't get away with that, because that's harassment. But physicians still uh, undertake more work than they're capable of doing. They take it on their shoulders, they suck it up, they do their job, and carry on. I'm guilty. I've done, I did it for years and years. Because they are expected to, physicians still do not want to admit that they're weak Surveys have shown that they don't even want to admit they're depressed. They do not want to admit they need help, that they're talking to someone. Millennials are a little different. Millennial physicians will admit to getting therapy if they're 
uh, getting stressed or burned out. But older physicians don't think that's a normal quote unquote thing. And you know, we, we answer questions about our mental health when we reapply for our licenses. Down at the bottom of the certificate, there's a little box that you have to check. Um, I do not have a mental illness that prevents me from practicing or I have not received treatment for a mental illness that would impair my judgment. So those are two questions that are still on forms that physicians fill out to renew licenses. What's the message there? The message is if you need help, if you're getting treatment for a mental illness, something's wrong with you and you can't practice medicine. So physicians suck it up by nature. They do the work because they're trained to in residency. And then if they are in trouble, they don't want to admit they're in trouble. It's just not what we do. Maybe as more and more women go into the field, now it's about 50-50, women tend to talk about their feelings a little Mm. more openly than men do. Maybe it will start to change a little bit. I'm not quite sure. But um, it's definitely a problem that men will carry stress. We all will carry stress and not deal with it. And delayed burnout is probably something that a physician or another healthcare provider wakes up one day and says, oh my God, I'm depressed. How did this happen? Hmm. Because they have to have noticed that they're physically exhausted all the time. They have to have noticed that they're emotionally overwhelmed, whether they worked in an ER or an ICU or a place where, you know, frontline family practice or internal medicine or pediatrics. They have to have noticed that they have these feelings of exhaustion and being overwhelmed. They may not have noticed that they detach from their patients or their family or their peers. Detachment is a big feature of burnout. You sort of pretend like you're not part of the team anymore. You don't need to talk to anybody. You go, I I went and hid in the call room. I didn't walk around the nursery and talk to the parents like I used to enjoy. So detachment from your coworkers and from the patients is, is a part of burnout. And maybe physicians might not notice they're acting, acting that way. But the thing they do notice when they finally get it is lack of fulfillment. When a physician or a nurse feels that they are no longer doing the job they want to do, when they're no longer making a difference, that's when burnout is has consumed them. And that's what happened to me. And that's why I like to talk about burnout, how it occurs, over what period of time and what it feels like, because the beginning signs may just seem like overwork. Mm-hmm. And the middle sign, the detachment, may not seem like anything you notice. But when you feel like you're no longer making a difference, that's a big deal for a physician or a nurse. Because that's what we do for a living. We make a difference. We care for people. Yeah. Now, you said that happened towards the end of your career, right? So it it wasn't in the beginning. You were, you loved, I guess, every second. Mm -hmm. I didn't love every second, but I was pretty resilient. I learned in my late 30s and early 40s how to exercise, how to take care of myself, how to use friends for support. I've had plenty of ups and downs in my career, but I don't think I was truly burned out until 
the end of my career. And and what happened in neonatology was lots of very tiny babies surviving, some with uh, nearly lethal malformations, some with severe complications, and <clears throat> therapy going on and on and on, and parents hoping for miracles, parents praying that their child would be the one that defied the odds. And we began to see in neonatology parents expecting more than modern treatment could give. Uh, when a baby was actually dying, some parents couldn't allow that to happen. When doctors recommended comfort care for a patient who was terminal, some parents weren't ready for that. That particular situation happened to me. That was the, the most challenging case. Um, was a baby that had so many complications. He was clearly dying from all of his injuries. <clears throat> and his father wouldn't let us put him on comfort care. He wanted everything done on and on and on and on. And it really got to me. There was another case of a baby who had a, a malformation that was so severe. She had to go on peritoneal dialysis. And we did that for almost a year. And she couldn't be transplanted. So when you do peritoneal dialysis in children, you do it as a temporary measure to get them big enough, healthy enough to get a kidney transplant. And that case bothered me, too, because the mom and the doctors and nurses disagreed about what should be done. <clears throat> and, and you know, I bet during COVID, those, those same kinds of ethical challenges uh, troubled people. How long do you press on with this patient? When do you take this patient to ECMO? Is this patient a, a risk that you can take? And, and those sorts of things wear and tear on physicians and nurses. If you know, if you have experience and you have experience with similar cases and you know the most likely outcome, 90% of children in this condition will die. You want to counsel parents to go ahead and accept that and to provide comfort care and enjoy their time with their baby. Some people aren't capable of that. And those cases bothered me ethically and emotionally. And those were the two specific cases that I think started my my spiral down into burnout. Because I I pretty much knew what I was doing in neonatology and I knew how to handle the stress of of sick babies and kids coming on and off the ventilator and a set of creamy triplets coming in the nursery. That was kind of routine. But this notion of who lives and who dies and who decides that was really tough for me. Yeah, I can, well, I can imagine having to talk to parents who, especially you know what you know as a doctor, and you've seen enough to know, but a parent hasn't, and the parent's not right. willing to accept that. And right. it's understandable, but... Totally. Um, but totally understandable. And, you know, there there is never complete agreement between physicians and patients or parents. When things are difficult, there's always questions. And those, those things make medicine really interesting, I think. I mean, you know, helping parents make decisions. How long do we press on? When do we give up? Should we not give up? I mean, those, those kind of decisions are wonderful to be a part of. I, I felt like being in neonatology, I was an intimate part of their family. I mean, some of my patients were in the nursery six months before they went home. Um, <clears throat> but 
when you make those kind of decisions and have those kind of discussions with parents or with your patient, you always have compassion. You always understand as another human being what that parent or patient must be going through. Oh, he, he just can't accept that his child's going to die or she just can't accept that her husband's going to die. And compassion keeps us straight as healthcare providers. It's what we do. Caring for others is compassion. And one of my partners came up to me when those two cases were kind of swirling around in the unit. Um, and he said, have you lost your compassion? And I went, oh, man. I mean, I'm really glad he asked me. And I was really embarrassed when he asked me. We, it, we were alone. And I thought to myself, I think that's what's happened. I think I'd lost my ability to be patient and tolerant and compassionate because I really wanted this father to do what I wanted and he couldn't. Um, that's when I figured out I was burned out. And you know, there's a lot written nowadays about burnout being compassion fatigue. Mm-hmm. A lot of the nursing papers talk about nurses that are burnout actually have compassion fatigue. Because nurses have way more compassion than doctors. They're at the bedside. They are there holding the patient's hand. And if a nurse loses her compassion, that's not normal. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, well, that goes with apathy. I guess that would be the opposite of sort of having compassion, right? If you, that's one of the last signs I think we were saying was apathy. apathy. I've never heard anybody call it apathy, but I guess if you've detached from your patient or their, or their parent, if you've detached from your work situation and you lack compassion, yeah, it would be apathy. Yeah. It would be just walking around going through the motions. Yeah, you're just doing the, the motions. Right. So, but right. it's, it's interesting in a sense that it's almost like a slow burn. You don't realize it it's happening. And then one day it's there, you know, I don't it's know. very much a slow burn. I came home and drank a glass of wine at night, or maybe I'd have two and I'd, wine to my husband and maybe he'd tell me about his hard day and I I didn't exercise quite as much and maybe I didn't see my friends and talk to them and I had stopped doing hobbies and I had stopped playing the piano and so it was a slow burn it was me kind of numbing out uh all the nights on call and all the difficult cases and all the you know uh, death and dying and I didn't realize it until my partner said, have you lost your compassion? I was really lucky, Jay. I worked in a big enough practice. I went to the medical director and I said, I need a change. I'm not well. I need a, I need to change. And we were right at the point of signing a contract to cover a low-risk labor and delivery nursery. And I cut back my hours to part-time, 35 a week. I went to this new nursery down the street to cover deliveries and check normal newborn babies. And I worked there the last two years of my career. And it was so much fun. (laughs) Oh, there were kids coming in with balloons to visit the new baby brother or sister. There were grandparents everywhere. I attended several deliveries that were stressful where the baby had to be coded, resuscitated. And of course, I could do that easily. That's what we do all the time. Um, but it was so much fun to talk to moms who had a normal baby and yeah. to talk about breastfeeding and to talk about circumcision and to talk about 
safe sleep. And so I, I rediscovered why I liked taking care of babies and working with parents. I started to exercise. I got into therapy. I'm proud to admit that um, I've had therapy several times in my career. And when I was burnt out, I got back into psychotherapy because I needed to understand the issues that had tipped me over the edge. And that helped a lot. Playing the piano helped a lot. I had lunch with friends on purpose. One day a week, I would have have lunch with a friend, sit down and talk and laugh. And man, it was therapeutic. I slowly got better, but it wasn't fast. It wasn't a fast recovery. It took me about 18 months to get better. And maybe it had taken me that long to get burned out. I'm not quite sure. So I implore people who have any symptoms of burnout to deal with it sooner than later. Because if you do have bad burnout or if it is prolonged and it's presentation, it may take you a while to recover. You may have to change your practice location. You may have to cut back your hours. You may have to go work somewhere else. Those things are tough to decide. Yeah, especially when you get into the routine that you're in. But sometimes the, the change of routine is it kind of forces you out of that. Um, I use the word apathy again, that apathetic state because you just get used to doing right. what you're doing. Right. Uh, connection and doing things for yourself is so important. It's some, that's another thing that kind of slowly goes away sometimes when you get older. It's <laughs> so important. It makes you, you know, when you have kids and life is going a, a thousand miles an hour is yeah. working out, seeing a therapist, seeing a friend is hard to do. It's hard to do, but if, if you can if force you yourself to do it, I remember in my 40s, I had a, a, a short bout of depression after the birth of my third child, and I saw a psychotherapist then, and and he and I sorted through all my priorities because I was doing way too much. You know, I had three kids. We had moved to a new city. I was working on call in the hospital and new baby, and um, and I had to say, Okay, my children are the most important. And then my husband, and I can do without this research project, and I don't have to be on that committee, and I don't need to do that group, and maybe I don't need to volunteer at the school. And I had to make decisions to exercise rather than volunteer at the school, to go eat lunch with my kids one day a week rather than to do that extra committee at the hospital. And so I had to actually force myself to choose things that were good for me, looking at the whole picture. And I think that's what middle-aged adults sometimes have a hard time with. Yeah. Because you're busy with kids. You're busy with your job. You're busy with kids, your spouse. And sometimes you put yourself on the back burner. Maybe just come home and drink a beer, or drink mm-hmm. a glass of wine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it That's almost not good for you. No, but it, you know, sometimes it almost becomes and I'm a big fan of therapy too. Therapy before some of that too, but it's one of one of the best things I ever did just getting to know yeah. myself or why I tick a certain way. Just yeah. was so helpful, but um you know, it, it's when you're running like that and going a million miles an hour, sometimes it feels like I'm too tired to do that for myself or that's maybe selfish. I should right. do something else for the kids or this and that, but whatever makes you happier in a sense, I think would make you a better parent or a better worker or whatever it is you're doing in life makes it better for you. You have to make some kind of time for yourself. Right. 
Right. Um, um, I totally agree. And I'm worried a lot about um, working mothers and working mother burnout right now, because I think in our zeal to be good mothers, sometimes perfect mothers, and do the household chores and have a full-time job and be a good mom, a lot of us forget to take care of ourselves. We really do. We forget that we really need to move our bodies two or three days a week, that we need to walk outside in nature, that we need to have lunch with a friend, that we need to have a date night with our husband. Those things are really, really important. And sometimes we get so busy that we push them on the back burner and that just contributes to the burnout because we're not taking care of ourselves. You know, I, I wanted to say an extra special word about dealing with stress when you're working hard. Um, if you're working really hard and you're maybe getting burned out and you don't know it, those people, and I was one of them, will tend to come home and kind of numb out with alcohol or not want to exercise or not want to talk. If your spouse doesn't want to talk to you about what's bothering them at work, especially if you're married to a doctor or a nurse. I think that is a big sign that they're overdone because physicians and nurses get this notion that they think they're supposed to be able to take care of themselves. You know, they're the caregivers. So, gee, I can't take care of other people unless I care for myself. And so I think especially physicians are hesitant to talk about their feelings. So the spouses that are listening out there, ask your husband or partner to talk about their feelings and try to get them to talk to a therapist if you suspect that they're burnt out. Now, you mentioned before that millennials and probably I'm going to assume when Gen Z's in in that field as well, I mean, they're not there yet, but they're, they're getting close. You said they'll tend to talk about their feelings a little bit more. So it's mostly the, I guess you're talking about like Gen X and. Yeah. Yes. That I wasn't aware of that. It was a Medscape survey of 10,000 mm. physicians, which is thought to be a pretty representative sample. And Medscape has surveyed docs since 2018 before the pandemic, 2020 during and 2021. And the burnout rates are just going up through the roof. And they ask them, how do you take care of yourself? And they say, they all say, oh, I can handle it myself. Or, oh, I talk to my family. Or, oh, I'm exercising, I'm fine. And only about 15% are in therapy. But when they broke down the, the percent that are happy getting therapy and are okay going to a therapist, millennials were way more. They were, be- they were okay with it to a much greater degree than older docs. Um, and, and I guess that's the way they were brought up by their parents talking about their feelings. I mean, I brought up my kids to talk about their feelings. Um, yeah. I don't know, but baby boomers just, oh no, I'm fine. I'm yeah. okay. You know, leave me alone. I'm that's okay. what I was thinking. I was thinking about <laughs> right. the boomers and then Gen, yeah. the Gen Xer. So I'm a Gen Xer. Yeah. Uh, we were kind of left to our own devices. You know, it's, both parents usually worked, uh, right, came right. Home, made our own dinner, you know, had a call yeah. when we were doing some but so i guess we would get that idea we try to handle it ourselves maybe and i could see that right i did i had a i had somebody on he was actually talking about gen z going into the workforce and um it does seem any any mention you know later millennials as well but it does sound like they're more in tune with their feelings and what they want 
out of life more than just, yeah. you know, when I think of my parents, yeah. I think of uh-huh. just Grin and Barrett, <laughs> you yeah, know, like me, you just, Grin and Barrett. Just Grin yeah. and Barrett. I mean, I think my generation might have questioned it a little bit more, but we didn't do much about it. We we're like, yeah, well, that's yeah. what it is, you know. Well, millennials are different. I, you know, I, I worked with a millennial in neonatology at, in Austin. Oh, he was a great doctor. And I could tell he wasn't quite happy. And we were, we were doing okay. We had plenty of people in the practice. I think we were taking call maybe one night a week and maybe one weekend a month, which was really minimal in my long career. And he came up to me. He had already decided he was going to go somewhere else. I said, Nathan, what's the deal? What happened? He said, you know, I just don't want to, don't want to work this hard. And I went, whoa, you've got to be kidding. This yeah. is the best schedule I've ever had. And he said, no, it's not the the best schedule. I like to ski and my girlfriend and I like to do this. And I think life is more important than working 50 hours a week in the NICU. I said, wow, 40 or 50 hours a week. That's like a life, you know, you can, that's okay. He said, no, it's not okay. It's not enough for me. Yeah. And he went to a different practice that was less busy, that was close to a ski resort. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and that one experience taught me Man, that young man knew what he wanted. Yeah. He wasn't willing to do what I had done, even though he wasn't working as hard as I had worked before. And he figured it out early on. I don't want to work this hard. Yeah. And, you know, I give people credit who can do that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah to an too. extent. <laughs> but it's, um, yeah, you know, again, going back to that talk, it was interesting because we were talking about where they kind of learned that and they they learned that watching us right they learned that watching adults who especially the boomer generation when you think about it you know i think about my father he went to to work really sick you know, he had to get yeah. sent home um, right they would miss big events the fathers anyway mm-hmm. for work because they couldn't leave mm-hmm. and then when they were 50 55 they got shoved out the door for somebody less expensive so the the social contract between your work and the employee was kind of broken kids who saw that i think just it's ingrained in them right i'm not going to let that happen to me so right and, and so maybe that's a good thing maybe what the millennials and the gen z's are going to bring to the workforce is a good thing because medicine will change it will have to change we're already going to be short nurses mm. um out of 4 million nurses in the US what did I read? One million have changed jobs. That's crazy. I know. Um, physician, the burnout rate is sky high and uh, we'll have a shortage of docs within a decade. And the healthcare system is not currently geared to support the well-being of young adults. It is geared to make money. And you know, you see the patients, you crank patients, you fill out no, they don't do charts anymore. You fill out the medical record. You spend time on your computer. There's all these administrative tasks for billing and <laughs> and for quality improvement and this, that, and the other. We know that doctors spend five hours a week on average outside of work just doing chart work, <laughs> paperwork. <clears throat> and I know nurses stay late filling out charts after their shift is over. Oh, I've can, seen that my whole life. <laughs> I've seen that my whole life. So she might go in for a 12-hour shift, but she gets her 30 minutes early, and then 
she finishes 30 minutes late and still has to chart. So that's a 14 hour shift. You're exactly right. That's not a 12 hour shift. And so health the healthcare system makes doctors and nurses work more hours than they should. The schedules are not flexible. I had to get somebody to cover me if I wanted to go attend a play at my children's school. Literally, I had to get a body, a warm body to be yeah. in my place to attend delivery. So there's no flexibility. And a nurse can't do that. She can't just check out in the middle of the day. Um, there are no uh, groups, support groups. And if there were physician support groups, I'm not sure physicians would chime in. I know that nurses love support groups. My daughter is a pediatric ICU nurse, and she says they have something like a support group where they talk about the issues, which kid is doing so badly that everybody's kind of bummed out about it, or um, which traveling nurse irritated everybody and everybody got mad because they had to pick up after her. And so there is a movement among nurses to do more teamwork support and communication support in the healthcare system. But that's rare for physicians, very rare. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're exactly right, though. My wife ends up working. There's some day, I think she got home this week, went in 6.30 a.m., came home. By the time she was home, it was 9 o'clock, 9.30. Right, right. Yeah, it just it, it just creeps. And yeah. she's doing a good job. And she said, well, I had to finish my work, and I had to chart, and I had to this, and I had to that, because she's short staff, hospitals, their their biggest cost center for hospitals, I don't know about practices, is nursing. And so they are going to um, staff as few nurses as they can get away with. And I read a study last week preparing for this conversation with you that said that if nurses have more than four patients, quality of care goes down in a measurable way that hospital infections go up in a measurable way. In the NICU, nurses will have one or two patients. They never have as many as three or four. That would be a feeder grower unit. But hospital nurses, ER nurses during the pandemic, they were short-staffed. There are still systems where nurses are short-staffed. Now, <clears throat> physicians are probably short-staffed too, but they don't yell about it as much. Yeah. They just kind of grin and bear it, as you say. But as long as our healthcare system is built on money, it's built around money and not prevention and outcome, we're going to be in this fix. Yeah. Well, that's such, that's such, that's a topic that starts going into other routes, you know, because mm -hmm. then you're talking about how our food's processed and things like that, exercise. Mm. You're talking about people taking care of themselves in a specific way. It prevent well we're talking about prevention so but it you know again it, it all comes down to money too right the, the food is all processed and it's, it's right. filled with all kinds of chemicals and you know you could see you could see these charts where you know once they uh, introduced you know, partially hydrogenated soybean oil into everything everybody's obesity rates skyrocketed right right stuff like that so it's that's such a big topic but you know mental health is another part and we're talking about mental health and it's right. so hard for people to get access to that. Um, Is that really true? Is it hard to get access to mental health? I keep hearing about these online uh, services I do that too. people can call into, and I have no idea if those work. I'm sure it's helpful. 
I just don't see how it'd be more helpful than me in front of somebody I trust opening up. You know, uh, that's the weird thing in therapy. It's like you're getting to know a stranger, but you're opening up all of your secrets that you might not share with a partner or a best friend. I just, I don't know Mm -hmm. if calling in has the same effect. I know for a fact that getting children into therapy, which I think is ridiculous, very, very hard, because a lot of them won't Very take. difficult. Well, yeah. the, the insurance is a nightmare. Everybody either doesn't take it or they want out of network. And Right. Uh, that's another thing that, you know, profit centers for insurance. Motive is kills healthcare as well and, mm. and mental health. Mm. I have a friend who's a social worker, and now she's a licensed therapist. She was a perinatal social worker forever and worked with all the families. And after I retired, she changed jobs. And she told me recently that she is working for employee assistance programs. She will talk to people who've gone to HR complaining about something, needing some assistance. And she will be approved to give them nine or 10 or 12 visits. I said, well, how is that? How can you do anything in nine or 10 or 12 visits? She said, oh, we can get a lot done because the people that want this therapy know something's wrong and they've asked for it. They've, they've, they've sought out HR. They've asked for employee assistance. Maybe they know they have a drinking problem or an mm-hmm. anger management problem or something. And they enter therapy knowing that they need help. And so her take is that. If you do have an employee assistance program, take advantage of it because they're paying therapists on the other end to help you. And usually you get free therapy for yeah. a period of time. That's kind of no, interesting. That's cool. Well, so that's and reassuring. But that's another thing. And this is where um, the studies you're talking about, why it's counterintuitive. Some of the companies are aware of burnout and they're aware of mental health. And, you know, it's funny. I was just talking to a buddy of mine who got a new job and he's it's in an insurance, insurance company, I mean, much higher end type of boutique stuff. But he's working at home, but it's a um, California based company. But they're huge on your mental health and again, trying to mitigate any kind of burnout. So he was saying like they're, they're giving them if they have a month where they don't have um, a day off, they give everybody like a wedding holiday. Oh, nice. Just, yeah, nice. they have a lot of. I see that happening in a lot of industries because a lot of it says that you're going to make mistakes. Right. Um, you're going to be. You're going to get tired. You're going to get tired, or you're going to leave. You know. You're going to take work home with you. I yeah. mean, you know. Well, that's good. I have read about that too. That that businesses are beginning to say you have to take your PTO. Yeah. You have to attend wellness training. You have yeah. to, you have to do other things that, um, promote wellness in the workplace. And I think those efforts are going to be helpful. Yeah. It's just not as prevalent in medicine and nursing yet. Yeah. Not, not as much as it needs to well, be. That- that comes from what you're saying is they just don't have enough people anymore, right, at this point. So they're forced into the overtime and taking on extra patients. Um, I wonder how much of that was forced by the uh, pandemic as well. As far as I know, in a lot of industries are saying some of that great resignation comes from people who were a few years from retiring right. and then just said, forget. It. And I know teachers who Right. I'd like, they were thinking of staying on for two years and they said, forget, I'm dealing with this. Right. I've, I've talked to teachers like that too. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the pandemic was the hardest on 
frontline workers, doctors, nurses, uh, ER, uh, EMTs, cleaners, service workers, anybody who had to be at work, mm. had to do a job. They were scared. They could have get infected. They were overworked. They tried their level best. They may or may not have worked for somebody who helped to protect them. Remember that shortage of PPE? I mean, that was horrendous. Yeah. Um, and they were short. They were over understaffed and they weren't paid well. Um, and so I think the pandemic pointed out how poorly we were taking care of our frontline workers, their mental health, their physical health, because it, it's really both. You have to be physically exhausted to get burnout. Mm. It's not just mental. You also have to be physically exhausted. And the pandemic showed us that uh, first-line workers, frontline workers can only take so much. I mean, I love medicine. I love it. I love neonatology. I miss it all the time. I miss being part of a team that worked so effectively and made babies well. But man, I just got fried. And um, and it's really just sad that um, we're still in a healthcare system that allows people who love to take care of patients in a pandemic or not to just get fried. I mean, that should not happen. Mm. It should not happen that a young nurse has to quit because someone has screamed at her and her manager doesn't understand and she has trouble with childcare and she and her husband are having trouble and she can't work another 12-hour shift this week. She can't do the overtime. How does that happen? I and mean, we, we have to start dealing with that. We have to start meeting people where they are as human beings with human problems. Work is not their whole life. Can you believe I'm saying this as a baby boomer? Work <laughs> is not your whole life. You have a life outside of work. And the sooner healthcare providers realize that and demand from their employers better support, we won't get better. Yeah, I I totally agree. Again, that's still going to take some time, yeah. especially for something that needs, that's so skilled. You know, right. it's not like you hire someone. Right. My wife went through in two years. I used to look at the work. I was like, really? Right. Oh, yeah, that's a lot. So I mentioned my daughter is a pediatric ICU nurse, and she worked all through the pandemic, and they were very busy at the children's hospital. The hospital system paid travelers 150% what they paid the nurses who stayed, who didn't quit. And it made all of them so mad. And a lot of them quit as a result of it. And she would come home and tell me about having to pick up the pieces after the traveler because, or help out the traveler because they didn't really know where everything was in the unit. And it was not until almost the pandemic was done that the hospital system gave raises to the nurses who stayed through the whole thing. Why didn't they do that up front? Yeah, that didn't make any sense. They, they didn't no. give them hazard pay. and that, No. Well, that's another thing that bothered me too because it even gets down to people are forced to work. We understand they're going to have to in this kind of situation. But then you're talking about even giving doctors and nurses hazard pay. Even if they're making enough money, it just shows some kind of appreciation for what they're doing. Right. But, you know, for somebody who's like a medical trainee or an assistant or even um, – a custodian who has to come in. It was such a scary time because we didn't know yeah. what, what could happen with the virus. So 
you know, that could have made a real financial difference and a real impact for, for them. So I just, I never understood right. it. But yeah, I heard that too. It was after the fact. It just didn't make, yep. didn't make a lot of sense. Well, hopefully some of these changes, uh, in our healthcare system will be coming along. People are talking about burnout. They're talking about solutions. The AMA, American Medical Association, is doing lots of in-service videos for physicians. I know the American Nursing Association is too. That act, the Nora Breen Act that um, was passed, allocated millions of dollars for research into prevention of healthcare mm-hmm. provider burnout. I don't know a lot about that, but I know there are some academic centers doing research on training residents, training faculty members how to resist burnout, how to take care of themselves mentally, how to handle the stress in their job. Yeah, I think I see that in a lot of places now that they're realizing beforehand to try to to cut this off, that before it becomes an issue, that this is something important to tackle. Like you said, we're, we're, we're evolving. I think the whole I think every, I think all jobs are kind of evolving. The pandemic definitely forced something in it. The one good thing I think that did come out of it was there was a lot of people who got time. Unfortunately, nurses and doctors didn't, but some people got time to pause and think about life a little bit, like what, what they were doing, that balance. So, you know, you're, you're seeing some of the changes in other industries with flexible hours, working at home, you know, hybrid schedule. Fortunately, the healthcare industry doesn't have something where they can do that. So, well, actually, telemedicine has become very popular. That's true. <laughs> That's very true. Now, I have no experience with telemedicine, but there is one good thing that help the healthcare system got out of the pandemic, and that is figuring out how to how to practice medicine virtually. I think that yeah. actually helped with mental health a little bit. Sometimes you just can't make it to a doctor's office or hopefully, a psychiatrist's hopefully. office. Yeah. I haven't seen any any data, but hopefully it made a difference. So. It'll be interesting as it comes down the line, what we see in the, in the next few years. I did want to talk about the book. I didn't know if you wanted to maybe go into the process of doing that and what, obviously, I know what inspired you, but if you want to yeah. get into that a little bit, I would love to hear oh, about I would, it. Oh, I'd love to. I um after I retired, I started thinking about how to tell the story of what it was like to work in a NICU, uh, the good, the bad, the everyday. And I contacted parents of some of my favorite patients, and I said, can I tell your story? Can I, I won't give any names. And they all said yes. I mean, there are probably six or eight different stories in the book, and a set of triplets here, a kid with a malformation there, and as I was writing those stories, my friend in my book club said, well, don't just write about the NICU, write about your life. And so I said, well, that's a good idea. And I decided to pull out my motherhood stories and all the challenges that I faced with one and two and three kids and uh, the different practices that I was in three over the years. And so I started to describe my being a working mother and my trying to make it work, going to work and taking call and coming home and being a mom and being a wife. And and so I wrote the book to reassure other working mothers that what we are doing is really difficult. And if we're lucky, we have a good partner or a good spouse. And if we're smart, we ask for help when we need it. And we all make mistakes. And so I wrote the book 
in a very honest and vulnerable way to let other people know that there is no perfect way to be a working mother. And let, even if you are fortunate enough to have a full-time nanny, like my husband and I could afford a nanny, you still miss things. You still miss out on things. You still make mistakes. And work still creeps into your family life. And you, your worries about your children go with you to work. And so I wrote the book in an effort to reassure younger working mothers to go easy on themselves to learn how to take care of themselves. I hope your wife reads the book. <laughs> yeah, I'll mail you a copy. Definitely. Um, because I think we're too hard on ourselves. Yeah, I agree with that a thousand percent. And that's something I see in a lot of mothers, especially where they're like super women. And then they'll say, oh, I'm not doing enough with right, for right. my son. I'm not doing, you know, work with that up or whatever. And it's like, it's, no, just, it's a drop in the bucket. Well, parenthood's a weird thing because there's no way to prepare for it. <laughs> you know, no. it's you, know, you have such an understanding of your parents a little more right, when you become right. a parent because it's just it's one of those things where you know you can read baby books and all kinds of things, but until you actually do it, you you don't know anything. And I, I'm honest with my kids; like, hey, we're figuring it out as we go. <laughs> too. Oh yeah, it's, everybody does. Yeah. Everybody, and each kid is different. And that's, yeah, that's a huge. Once point. you think you have it down with one, and the next one throws you a different curveball, and that's just the way it is. I say that and all the time. I know, and I wanted, and I told real stories about my three, and and all the awful things that they threw at us, and and I also threw in some triumphs. But it's just what parenting is. It, being a working parent is really hard. It may be a little harder for women than it is for men, and that's because we take on too much. Mm -hmm. We want to be perfect mothers. We want to be super moms secretly. I don't know where we got that idea, because I don't think the people who raised baby boomers were perfect mothers, and baby boomers were all out working, so they weren't perfect mothers. So I don't know where we get that idea, but young women who are working think they should be doing everything, and it is impossible. It is just not doable. And when you don't take care of yourself, it's even worse. I agree. And so I wanted, I wanted my book to be the kind of book that might provide analysis of that situation for younger women. It probably provided a lot of catharsis for you too, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 of course. <laughs> yeah. Probably more than you expected. Did you, uh, um, yeah. did you feel like you learned something about yourself doing that? Oh my God. Of course. And yes. And I, I mentioned to you that I'd been in therapy a few times throughout my career and, and then writing the book was wonderful. And I had to decide what, what kind of life I had and yeah. did I really make a difference? And was I a good enough mother? And I had to decide those things in writing the book and, and it, it, it was good. It was a good process, but I think you have to be either old or strong to go through that process. Yeah. Yeah, I've had a couple of people who've written books, and definitely the big challenge is the first one. I know the person I was talking about before with Gen Z, his name's Anthony Onesto, and he was saying, oh, the biggest problem I had was I needed to finish what I was doing instead of going back. He's like, I kept editing the book while I was trying to move forward. He's like, I could have done that later. (laughs) But it just... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I don't know. Maybe he had a deadline or something. I didn't have a deadline. It took me about 18 months to write the book. Hmm. And then it took me two years working with two different editors to get it finished. 
And I was lucky to find a publisher pretty quickly. So the whole process took about five years. Oh, wow. Okay. But, yeah. you know, I'm not a writer. I'm a doctor. So. Yeah, if you did it, yeah. I'm sure uh, once you do a few books, it gets a little easier. <laughs> but, probably, I guess. Yeah. Do you plan on writing yeah. more? Or? I do. I have I have an idea for a second book. Okay. So. Autobiographical or something else? Uh, no. I, um, something that is that affects everybody. I don't know if I should tell you. You don't have, have to. to. I just was wondering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sp- it's you don't something have to spill that affects everybody. It, it's about family relationships okay. and um, and mental health. So. All right. Well, listen, thank you so much for doing this. If you want to plug yourself in any way, go right ahead. I'll give you the floor. Okay. Uh, if your listeners are interested, go to my website, susanlandersmd.com. You can uh, buy my book there. You can see my blog. There are some resources for parents. If you go to SusanLandersMD.com forward slash burnout, there is a free checklist for working mothers to see if they are burned out. And there's also a free solutions guide to get you started on ways to recover from burnout. So that's my plug, my checklist, and my solutions guide. Yeah, that checklist, I actually I like that a lot. But I'll end up putting all that in the show notes as well, so you can find it. But uh, thank you again for doing this so much. Oh, this has been fun. Yeah. You are fun to talk to, well, and you've you. got a great a great grasp of the issues. Yeah, I well, that's a neuroticism I grew up. Yeah, I'm always scared that I'm just. I have to know as much as I can going into these things. Or just good. It's a I always call it a perfectionist trait. You yeah. know, sometimes well, it's a good, good thing. It's yeah. good. Yeah. It, it's it's good if you could if you don't let it hold you back. Sometimes it, it holds you back a little bit. And I oh, had to deal with that. Oh. You know, yeah, like if I couldn't okay. do it the right way, I wasn't going to do. it. Well, it, keep keep learning. Learning yeah. is always good. You know, just keep keep being curious. Keep learning. That keeps you moving forward. Yeah. Thank you again, and uh, maybe we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you, Jay. Take yeah. care. Thanks to everyone who took some time out of their day today to listen. The With Jay Berg Show is available wherever you find your favorite podcast, or go directly to jaybergshow.podbean.com and subscribe to get the latest episodes. I know it may not always be a straight line, but I hope we'll see you again to take the journey and escape a while for thoughtful excursions into the world of ideas across politics, technology, pop culture, and all realms of civic life. See you soon. Support, and you have not.